Hello, everybody. I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. For just a buck a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. I've got a new one coming out real soon. If you've ever wanted to drink a bad cup of coffee in the comfort of your own home from a custom Words for Granted mug, you can also get one of those through patreon.com. Thanks to Keith and the Endless Knot podcast for their recent contributions. Also, thanks to Tim for his recent one-time contribution via PayPal. I always forget to mention this, but if Patreon isn't your thing, but you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Alright, on to today's episode, the second in a mini-series on Greek philosophy. If I were to use the word sophisticated to describe someone or something, I would mean it as a compliment. If someone were to describe me or an aspect of my personality or my work as sophisticated, I would probably take it as a compliment too. Presumably, most of you feel the same way about this word. By definition, sophistication is a measure of worldliness, elegance, good taste, knowledge, or experience. In one way or another, these are things that most of us strive for. That might seem like a wildly broad statement, but think of it like this. After years of first-hand work, a mechanic might develop a sophisticated understanding of how a car is put together. Similarly, after years of practice and study, a musician might develop a sophisticated understanding of how to express themselves on their instrument. These are two different kinds of sophistication, vastly different in their nature, but they share a common ground rooted in authentic, first-hand knowledge and experience. Now, this isn't to say that it's impossible for sophistication to be perceived in a negative light. If something is overly sophisticated in the wrong context, it can come off as pretentious, like wearing a $10,000 suit in a Taco Bell dining room. However, In a general sense, I think it's safe to say that sophistication is a positive attribute. Knowing that this is an episode in a mini-series on words derived from ancient Greek philosophy, you might assume that sophisticated derives from some old philosophical ideal of human excellence or something having to do with classical cultural refinement. Well, that just isn't true. The reality is that for most of its existence, the word sophisticated and its various cognates across languages and time periods often carried a negative connotation. Prior to the late 19th century, if someone called you sophisticated, it probably meant that you were a liar or a cheater who used deceptive language to get what you want. Amusingly, one of the earliest attested English usages of the noun form sophistication referred to diluted alcohol. Imagine all of the refinement, experience, and worldliness associated with the modern sense of the word sophistication, but used to achieve deceitful ends. 
In order to understand the historical context out of which this original sense of the word emerged and how it relates to ancient Greek philosophy, we have to cover a lot of historical backstory. I hope you're all up for it. Here it goes. In the ancient Greek world of the 5th century BCE, there emerged a group of teachers called sophists. These sophists traveled from place to place, teaching students a wide range of practical, worldly subjects, the most prominent of which was rhetoric. Sophists made very good livings for themselves, as most of their students were the rich children of aristocratic families, many of whom would go on to be politicians later in life. The sophists' teachings, which came to be known as sophistry, went against the grain of common Greek thought at the time, and consequently, sophistry received a lot of backlash that we'll discuss in further detail later on. According to their opponents, the sophists promoted illogical arguments disguised as clever eloquence. Their passionate skepticism both baffled and frustrated conservative-minded Greeks, and worst of all, the sophists challenged the authority of the gods. The sophist Protagoras famously said, quote, Man is the measure of all things, end quote, by which he meant that we, individual human beings, we are responsible for our actions and eternal, unchanging moral laws just don't exist. That might not seem like such an outrageous claim in the year 2018, but to a good old-fashioned Greek on the street in the 5th century BCE, the sophists were a bunch of con men who sold trashy ideas to spoiled, rotten kids. Actually, it wasn't only good old-fashioned Greeks on the street who would have felt this way, but also some of the ancient Greek world's most famous philosophers. Do the names Plato and Socrates ring a bell? As you may have guessed by now, the word sophist would ultimately go on to produce the modern English words sophisticated and sophistication. So with that connection in mind and some historical context in place, let's dive into some proper etymology. It's going to be a while before we're back in the familiar territory of modern English. The word sophist is an anglicization of the Greek word sophistes, which ultimately comes from the root word sophia, which meant knowledge or wisdom. If you listen to the first episode in this miniseries, then that root word is already familiar to you. The soph in sophisticated is cognate with the soph in philosophy. Philosophia, the Greek word that ultimately produced the English word philosophy, literally meant a love of wisdom. The evolution of sophia into sophist, or sophistes in the original Greek, took place in several stages. First came the word sophos, which meant skilled in a particular craft. It appears with this sense in the works of Homer and could be applied to anyone from a military commander to a cobbler. By the 6th century, sophos came to mean wise, particularly concerning civic life. When used as a noun, a sophos was akin to a sage. It was used in this sense to describe politicians such as Solon and Thales who helped revolutionize Greek society. This sense of sophos referring to sage-like wisdom, in a general sense, went on to produce the verb sophizo, which variously meant to instruct or to become wise. Based on its morphology, or word shape, we know that sophistes, 
that Greek word for sophist, is actually a direct descendant of this word sophizo. Originally, sophistes meant something like master craftsman or wise man, but by the 5th century BCE, the practice of teaching sophistry had become widespread, and the word began to refer primarily to these radical teachers. I should note that even though the modern English word sophistry tends to refer to this historical intellectual movement, it can also be used in a more general sense to refer to any fallacious argument. It's not exactly a word you hear on a regular basis, but I wouldn't be surprised if you deal with someone who uses sophistry on a regular basis without even knowing it. Anyway, over the course of my research, I haven't been able to find out if the title sophist began as an endonym or an exonym. An endonym is a fancy way of saying what a group of people calls itself, and an exonym is a fancy way of saying what outsiders call a group of people. Whether the word sophist began as an endonym or an exonym is a small but interesting point to ponder in the context of this story, because if the sophists christened themselves as quote-unquote master craftsmen, it was a clever marketing decision that pretty much proves the point that sophists were masters of worldly rhetorical skills that helped them get ahead in life. On the flip side, if the name sophist came from outside of the group of teachers themselves, who gave them that name? Was it their first wave of clients who literally bought into what the sophists were teaching? Or what if it was the opponents of the sophists who called them by that name as a mocking, ironic joke? If anyone has any idea about this, please share it with me via email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com, and I'll share it on the upcoming episode. Regardless of who named the sophists, the reason why sophistry has a bad reputation is largely because of who wrote about the sophists. This is also the reason why words such as sophisticated and sophistication, that ultimately derive from sophistry and the sophists, originally had a negative connotation. The main culprit behind all of this is Plato. Now, the philosopher Plato is someone that everyone listening to this podcast probably has heard of. In fact, many of you have probably read a bit of Plato's works. However, just to be sure that everyone is on the same page, let me give you a brief summary of one of Plato's core beliefs that is relevant to our discussion. One of Plato's most famous philosophical theories is the theory of forms. The Platonic theory of forms holds that the appearance of reality that you and I experience on an everyday basis is actually an imitation of a higher non-physical reality that consists of ideal, perfect forms. For example, all of the right triangles in the earthly realm are actually just shadow-like imitations of the ideal form of a right triangle that exists in this realm of forms. But by striving to understand these shadow-like imitations that populate our earthly realm, in the realm of their minds, philosophers can arrive at an understanding of what the ideal form of a right triangle is. Plato applied his theory of forms not only to physical objects or shapes in the real world, but also to ethical ideas such as justice and the ultimate good. Just from this meager insight, we can deduce a few things about Plato's worldview. To put it simply, Plato had a metaphysical approach to understanding physical reality. 
metaphysical literally means beyond the physical, and it doesn't get more beyond the physical than Plato's theory of forms. By extension, Plato's metaphysical view of the world provides a basis for the belief in absolute truths, whether that's regarding something calculable, like the angles of a triangle, or something seemingly less calculable, like proper justice. In contrast, the sophists made their bread and butter by teaching extreme skepticism. To the sophists, there were no universal truths, no ultimate reality. They viewed reality as a collection of individual subjective perspectives. Plato wasn't silent about his disagreement with the sophists' teachings. In fact, throughout his body of extant works, Plato deliberately disparages the sophists and makes them look like a bunch of idiots. The writings of Plato are our main source for information about Greek sophists in the 5th century BCE, and the picture he paints of them is obviously biased. In his dialogue entitled The Sophist, Plato defines sophistry as, quote, a productive art, human of the imitation kind, copy-making of the appearance-making kind, uninformed and insincere in the form of contrary speech-making art, end quote. This definition relegates the sophists to a status inferior to, quote-unquote, real philosophers because, according to Plato, real philosophers deal with the realm of forms, not their imitative appearances such as those that we encounter on a mundane, everyday basis. Unfortunately, the writings of the sophists only survive in the scarcest of fragments, so A, we can never know the sophists on their own terms, and B, we can never know what the sophists thought of Plato and the Platonists that continued to develop Plato's intellectual legacy after his death. The reason why the Platonic bias against the sophists has survived over time is not only because so many of Plato's works have actually survived, but also because later Christian thinkers actually viewed Plato as one of their own. During late antiquity and the Middle Ages, many of Plato's metaphysical ideas began to be interpreted as precursors to Christian metaphysical ideas. Christian intellectuals saw Plato as a Christian himself, except he had the bad luck of having lived during a time period before the coming of Christ. Since Christianity became the dominant ideology in the Western world, and many Christian theologians liked Plato, Plato's view on the sophists was included as part of that cultural package. Like I already mentioned, the connotation of words derived from the sophists and sophistry also came as part of this cultural package. However, before the platonic bias against sophistry became fully ingrained into popular Western thought, the term sophist experienced a revival during the first century CE in a literary movement known as the Second Sophistic. This time around, sophists were not a group of controversial teachers that charged large sums of money to educate aristocratic children, but rather, they were extravagant public speakers. By the first century CE, the Greek world had been absorbed into the Roman Empire, and naturally, many aspects of Greek life had become Romanized. In the wake of this Roman globalization, Many Greeks during the first century CE yearned to identify with their own lost culture of the classical era. This spurred on a renaissance of Greek oratory called the Second Sophistic. Like the first wave of sophists in the fourth and fifth centuries BCE, the second wave of sophists specialized in rhetoric. 
but that's about all the two different generations of sophists had in common. The second wave of sophists didn't necessarily teach, they didn't get involved in politics, and they certainly didn't promote radical philosophy. They were primarily orators who would improvise speeches in a sensational linguistic style reminiscent of classical Greece. In his work, Lives of the Sophists, Philostratus says that the role of the sophist during the second sophistic was, quote, to revive the antique and purer form of religion and to encourage the cults of the heroes and Homeric gods, end quote. Now, how ironic is that? The original sophists had completely given up on the Homeric gods and certainly would have denounced any idea of a pure religion. The second sophistic didn't last very long, and as the works of Plato continued to grow in influence as the centuries progressed, particularly with the Latin-speaking church figures throughout Europe, the Platonic take on sophistry ultimately won out. This probably explains why, by the late Latin period, the verb sophisticare, which Latin had picked up from sophistry and the sophists, had come to mean to tamper with, to render impure, or to adulterate. This Latin verb, sophisticare, is the basis for the English verb, sophisticate. The verb, sophisticate, first appears in the English written record during the 14th century, and it's the first word derived from this lineage of sophists and sophistry that appears in English. Its original meaning was to corrupt a substance's purity by admixture. This sense was probably extrapolated from the corrupting influence that sophists had on Greek society as portrayed by Plato. Similarly, the words antonym, unsophisticated, a purely English invention, by the way, originally meant unmixed or unadulterated. During the 17th century, to sophisticate reacquired the meaning of to delude someone with fallacious arguments, it seems likely to me that this meaning was around for much longer than this, but somehow it just didn't appear in writing until then. During this same century, the word unsophisticated had developed a metaphorical sense meaning naive or inexperienced. In spite of all of the backstory that I've just shared with you over the last 15 or so minutes, this metaphorical usage of unsophisticated is probably the most important turning point in our story. You see, this semantic development of unsophisticated is probably what caused the modern sense of sophisticated to emerge during the late 19th and early 20th century. Yes, it happened that recently. The opposite of naive and inexperienced is, of course, worldly and experienced, and these are some of the basic connotations of what sophisticated means today. The modern sense of sophisticated is a response to the semantic development of the antonym derived from it. Since the meaning of a word constructed with the prefix un is dependent on the meaning of the root word to which that un prefix is attached, it's quite unusual for an antonym formed with the prefix un to semantically evolve independent of the root word and then change the meaning of that root word. We haven't encountered an instance of this yet on the podcast, and I don't think I've encountered another instance of this in all of my independent etymological research. So, there's my take on how the Sophists, originally a group of untraditional Greek teachers that emerged during the 4th and 5th centuries BCE, ultimately gave us the word sophisticated. 
It's a somewhat convoluted story, and its final twist has literally nothing to do with the 2,000 years of historical setup that preceded it, but sometimes that happens. The word stories that I tell on this podcast play out on the stage of real life, and they don't always have a neat beginning, middle, and end. And that's it for this one. I hope you loved it. Again, if you want to help support the show, patreon.com slash wordsforgranted is your ticket. I've got a bunch of custom mugs that are looking to find a new home. If that's not in your budget, but you still want to support the show, I would love it if you left a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast directory of choice. Those reviews really help the show grow. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter, both of which are at wordsforgranted. If you have comments, questions, or concerns about the show, feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.